Welcome to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. I'm Greg Drevenstedt, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine. Today's episode is sponsored by Fly Racing. Since 1998, Fly Racing has aimed to provide customers with the very best in off-road performance products. Led by the revolutionary Formula S smart helmet, Fly Racing continues to push innovation and safety to new levels. Never before has style and technology blended together so seamlessly as the 2024 Fly Racing lineup. For more info, check out flyracing.com or your local Western Power Sports dealer. Follow at Fly Racing USA on social media and cheer for all your fly racing riders in the Super Motocross World Championship. On the show with me today is my friend and colleague, Kevin Duke, who is the editor-in-chief at American Rider and also a contributing editor to Rider. Uh, so Duke, we just kicked off a new year. Uh, we're sort of you know in January and um, there are a lot of cool 2024 motorcycles and that's what we wanna talk about is bikes that have come out, bikes that we've ridden, some of the trends and new motorcycles these days. Uh, so, you know, I was making a list for this show and from Aprilia to Yamaha, there are over 70 new or updated motorcycles. Uh, mostly we're talking about street bikes, anything with a license plate on it. So over 70 new or updated motorcycles have been announced for 2024. So yeah, that's a lot of bikes. And, you know, you and I are lucky enough, we get to ride a lot of them. We may not ride all of them, but uh, you and I have already ridden some of the 2024 bikes and we'll get into some of that. But, uh, you know, before we get into specific models and bikes that we've ridden, I want to talk about some of the sort of general trends uh, that are going on in motorcycles these days. And first and foremost, we have to talk about adventure or ADV bikes, which seem to sort of have taken over the market in some ways. Um, what do you think? Why is that? Well, adventure bikes are amazing. I think in the first uh, generations of adventure bikes, there was a lot of compromises, right? It was like more to the street or more to the dirt and now uh these days the the adventure bikes can do anything and they've kind of taken over sport touring you put a, a seat up taller and you've got more leg room you put a bigger front wheel on and you can go to more places and so it just opens up horizons and uh there's seems to be less compromises the tiger 900 i rode a few uh, uh weeks ago uh, that had, uh, there was a rally version and a, uh, GT version and I, I like riding fast on the road. So I want a GT version, except the rally version pretty much did everything the GT could do. And then we spent another day going off road on it, on the rally version. And it's like, well, there's not a lot of compromises anymore. It's a, it's a fabulous, uh, market, how it's expanded to, uh, include riders of all kinds, sport touring riders and the dual sport riders and combine them into a neat package that doesn't offer a lot of compromises. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the SUVs and crossovers in the four wheel world. I mean, those things have come to dominate, uh, the automotive market. You've got Lamborghini and Porsche and, all of these performance car companies making SUVs, and a lot of people thought that that would never happen, but they sell everyone they make. They have high margins on all of them. And the thing about adventure bikes is, you know, of course, all the marketing is everybody's, you know, flying off of dunes and they're roosting and they're just, they're basically doing all kinds of cool off-road stuff when you get a, you know, a, a professional motocross racer or something like that on, 
a uh, an adventure bike, you see what they can do. But most people, you know, it's kind of like with SUVs. Ninety uh, percent of them won't really leave the pavement, or if they do, it's just down a regular gravel road that you could take a Goldwing down. And there's an attitude behind it, right? It, it, the the people riding SUVs that look kind of off roady and don't go off road, they're still carrying around that attitude, right? Like I can go anywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, since the pandemic, everybody now has a bug out vehicle, so they either got their four-wheel drive sprinter van or they've got their Tacoma with a rack and a, and a rooftop tent and they've got all of their you know gas tanks and winches and everything like that and the same thing in the adventure bike world you know people love to farkle out their bikes they love to put on luggage and and crash bars and lights and I mean if you've ever been on the freeway and you have somebody coming up behind you on a GS and they've got clear water lights it's like you know it's like having somebody throw a spotlight on you and it's even during the daytime so yeah it was interesting uh, seeing the new uh, 2024 Harley announcement and they've got this CVO Pan America, right? And so the Pan America is a good adventure bike. Uh, but I had to chuckle a little bit when uh, I heard the Brad Richards say, uh, nobody modifies uh, adventure bikes like Harley customers. And I'm like, have you met a BMW <laughs> customer? Exactly, exactly. Well, speaking of that, so that was uh, the CVOs were just uh, the 2024 Harley-Davidson's. Uh, they've got that CVO Pan America, which is a $28,400 adventure bike. So that's the thing about adventure bikes is, you know, is some of them, there's a lot of tech on some of them. They can be very expensive. I mean, that one is outfitted with um, adaptive ride height. It's got a quick shifter. It's got luggage. It's got all the kind of stuff, you know, accessories that you would want. It's got a cool paint job. Um, other bikes that uh, Harley Davidson announced this week were really kind of in their wheelhouse. So it's an updated street glide, upgraded road glide, a um, CVO road glide ST, which is a hot rotted uh, version of, of that bike. So, but before we get off on some of that, so, you know, the thing about adventure bikes, I'm with you. I'm fortunately, I'm, you're, you're, you have a shorter inseam than I do, but you've ridden a lot of bikes and you're not, you're not put off by the tall seat heights. I've got a 34 inch inseam. And there's hardly a motorcycle that you can buy, except for maybe some dirt bikes that I can't flat foot. But the thing is, so they're they're they have an upright seating position. They're really comfortable. They may not have the full wind protection of say a full boat sport tour. But the interesting thing is, is that the the open class sport tour market has kind of they haven't updated. Yamaha hasn't updated its FJR. Kawasaki hasn't done anything with the Concorde 14 in a long time. Honda no longer makes the ST 1300. But a lot of this stuff cool stuff that you would want on a motorcycle. For example, the very first production motorcycle to have cornering ABS, which is an absolutely fantastic safety feature and it's available on a lot of bikes, was on the KTM 1190 Adventure 10 years ago. You know, that was a Bosch design technology. And I remember the first time I rode that bike and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go in into a corner and try and just stab the brakes as hard as I can and hope I don't get pitched off this thing. And it took a while to sort of build up the, the nerve to do that, but that was the kind of thing that it used to be sport bikes where you were going to get the cool technology. We were going to get ride modes and traction control and a lot of those different things, which again, they're still highly sophisticated sport bikes that have all that stuff. But, you know, some of the first bikes to have radar assisted things like adaptive cruise control, uh, blind spot detection. One of the first bikes that I think of was the Ducati Multistrada V4 was one of the first bikes to offer that kind of tech. And now you can get it on um, other adventure bikes as well. And it was kind of interesting how uh, the Pan America was the first bike with uh, adaptive ride height, adjustable ride height. 
and uh, you rode the BMW uh, 1300GS, and it's got that technology. Yeah. And it's yeah. funny how Harley kind of became the leader in that feature. I, I was, yeah, you know, when yeah, when the Pan America came out a couple of years ago, you and I both went to that press launch, and you know, I I think we were all pretty surprised at how well it worked. I mean, the thing is, you know, it was anything that Harley Davidson one came out with an adventure bike that there were really no excuses or caveats. It wasn't like a Buell Ulysses. It didn't have belt drive. It didn't have any kind of funky technology. It is they benchmarked it against the leading adventure bikes from KTM, BMW and so forth. And they came out with a fantastic bike right out of the gate. As far as I know, it's been one of the top selling adventure bikes in the U.S. since it came out two years ago. But like you said, they were you know, it's interesting because. Harley-Davidson makes mostly cruisers and cruisers are known for their low seat heights. And that's something mm -hmm. that people are very comfortable with. And so they were the ones who, again, they said, hey, we're going to do an adventure bike, but we don't want to exclude too many of our customers or potential customers. And so that adaptive ride height, which can lower, I think, the seat height by up to almost a couple of inches when you come to a stop. It works really, really well. Uh, yeah, they were the first ones to do it. And then, like you said, BMW's got it. Uh, Triumph has added it to some of its Tigers. And it's going to be probably pretty commonplace on some of these adventure bikes because, I mean, a lot of our readers say most adventure bikes are just too dang tall for them. Yeah. And Harley learned uh, about 20 years ago that all their customers prefer their bikes with lower seat heights. And so that's why most of their bikes have really limited uh, rear suspension travel. And so to have that ability to uh, accommodate a shorter rider um, uh, on a taller bike like an adventure bike, uh, yeah, it makes all kinds of sense. But then it's going to add more cost to these bikes. And uh, I think we're going to be talking about technology and these technologies add cost. Yeah, you and I could obviously uh, fill up a whole episode talking about adventure bikes. And we'll do that at a later episode. I mean, like I say, there you mentioned the, the new R1300GS, which is a ground up overhaul of that bike. It's fantastic. I rode it in Spain last fall. Um, you're going to ride the new F900GS in Spain next month. The new Transalp has been really popular. Um, there's a new Moto Guzzi Stelvio, there's new V-Strom 800s, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of bikes. So there are so many adventure bikes in the market that we really should just sort of focus on that at, at a later time. So let's, you were talking, we've talked about tech, we've talked about, you know, radars and cornering ABS. So yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, what's common on a lot of motorcycles these days is throttle by wire. So it's, you know, it's no longer a cable, you know, throttle. It's basically all done electronically. Uh, they, a lot of motorcycles have inertial measurement units, which are basically accelerometers, kind of like what's in your smartphone. It knows orientation in six axes. Okay. So how fast you're going and sort of yaw and pitch and all of those sorts of things. It kind of tells the engine control unit, you know, what the motorcycle is doing in time and space. And that informs cornering ABS. It informs lean angle sensitive uh, traction control. Uh, other things like wheelie control, it can do a lot of different things. Uh, bikes have quick shifters now, so, you know, they can be up and down quick shifters where you don't have to use a clutch except for pulling away from a stop. Mm -hmm. uh, Semi-active suspension, which I know is one of our favorite features. It's basically the damping is managed, again, by sensors, uh, stroke sensors and IMUs in real time to adjust. It can stiffen up the, the fork so it doesn't dive so much on uh, brake dive. It doesn't squat under acceleration. And then, of course, we've talked about some of this radar adaptive stuff. What do you think about all this technology that's on bikes these days? Well, throttle by wire, when it came out, it was kind of uh, a little bit, I wouldn't want to say glitchy, but it wasn't refined. <laughs> 
Right. And, uh, but yeah, now throttle by wire, uh, wire, any bike can have electronic cruise control, right? It's you're not controlling a throttle tube. You're just controlling what the, the brain is telling the throttles to do. And, and then uh, IMU, you talk about cornering ABS, that the IMUs and inertial measurement units are the things that make cornering ABS possible. And so um, more and more bikes are getting IMUs. Lots of bikes still don't have them. And so you can still have ABS, uh, but you can't have cornering ABS. And you can still have trash control, but you can't have a highly refined trash control like you can with an IMU. So the IMU, even... Uh, even quick shifters, the IMUs, uh, the Street Triple, which I rode uh, la last year, the previous version didn't have an IMU. And the quick shifter was good, but the IMU equipped Street Triple, the quick shifter was brilliant. It was flawless. And so even uh, the IMUs can inform quick shifters of when and how best to shift using electric uh, ride-by-wire throttles, right? So, yeah, all this technology is making bikes better. Uh, I'd hate to be the person to pull it apart to try and fix it on a dusty roadside at midnight or whatever. But uh, yeah, the bikes just keep getting better. And we, even the the least desirable bikes are pretty good motorcycles these days. We're, yeah. I was talking at the Suzuki launch uh, earlier this week, and I, I think journalists had it a lot easier in the old days because there was all kinds of things to complain. <laughs> now it's like you're nitpicking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to speak about some of this technology, I know that, you know, it's particularly some readers that maybe a little bit, you know, or viewers are a little bit old school. They're like, I don't need any of that stuff. I don't need ABS. I don't need any of this. Mm -hmm. Now, one of their concerns is perhaps complexity. It can make motorcycles more expensive to buy, uh, can make them more expensive to work on if something isn't working. But, you know, I have to say is, you know, you and I both have been on lots of press launches, ridden lots of motorcycles, and particularly in a lot of unusual places. You're riding them in, in another country uh, on strange roads on mountains, and they can be, surfaces can be wet, they can be sandy, they can be a lot of different things. And particularly cornering ABS is one of those features that uh, I absolutely love it because it has, I know it has saved my bacon a few times. And the thing is, what I don't think a lot of people realize is that anti-lock braking is basically just trying to prevent lockup, but it's mostly in a straight line. The way that cornering ABS works is that there's actually brake force, you know, it, it can control brake force distribution where the, the motorcycles, you know, algorithms and sensors know that if you're leaned over that you've given up a lot of traction by being on the side of the tire and it will not allow the brake system to put too much braking force into the calipers in order to basically overwhelm that traction. So it is a fantastic safety feature. I mean, you can crash any motorcycle, but it's something that it not only limits uh, lockup, but also brake force, which I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate. Right, and you had mentioned the KTM, uh, I think that was the first bike with cornering ABS. And when I first heard about it, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to just slam on the front brake in the corner while I'm leaned over at 30 degrees. Uh, I got to test out this rig that, you know, kept you up, upright and I could do that. And so, yes, you can slam on the front brake while you're leaned over at 30 degrees and the bike does not lose traction. Like it's almost magical. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, again, you still need to know how to brake going into a corner and make sure you, you're braking hard enough to make a corner, do all those sorts of things. I think also one of the things that some people don't fully appreciate is a lot of these systems work in the background. Like, you know, cornering ABS does not interfere with the riding experience. It doesn't make braking feel weird. Yes, old ABS systems. I mean, 
the earliest production bikes with ABS were BMWs back in the late 80s. And even in ni 90s and early 2000s, some of them, when you would apply the brakes pretty hard, you could feel it kind of pulsing. It was, uh, you could feel it kind of, the, it was a little bit lurchy at, at certain mm -hmm. times, but but the David, the systems have advanced so much that same with traction control. Traction control used to be one where, of course, that's limiting real wheel speed. So you're not, you know, spinning up the rear tire, possibly either sliding out, getting into a, a, a situation where you could fling yourself off in high side. Mm -hmm. But um, some some traction control systems, it was almost like hitting a hard rev limiter. It was it would right. be a rather abrupt, almost like hitting tilt on a pinball machine or something <laughs> like that, if anybody remembers pinball machines. But but like these days, the intervention is so subtle. I'm sure you've been on bike plenty of times where you basically just accelerate hard out of a corner. You don't, I would not necessarily feel any apparent slippage, but you'll see a traction control light flicker a little bit because it's basically, it's applying just a little bit of input just to make sure that the wheel speeds are where they should be. So. Yeah, and you don't even notice it. You have to look at the gauges to know if traction control is engaging or not. That's how smooth it's become, especially with IMUs. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, I personally like, Anything that can add and you know make a bigger safety net, wider margin of safety, or something, I certainly welcome uh, because I know that I am not a professional racer, never was, didn't race. Um, is that I know that it's the panic situation where I may not react right. appropriately. I may overbrake. I may just like just freak out and grab too much of a front brake. Modern bikes have fantastic braking systems that are super powerful. So anything that would keep me from you know making a bad situation worse by overreacting i think is a good thing uh and again it doesn't interfere with the ride you know as an older rider i i hate the idea of the bike overriding what i want it to do except it's gotten seamless like even the, there's a whole bunch of bikes now that have uh electronic brake distribution where it'll add a little bit of uh rear brake when you're applying the front brake and Maybe the early systems, you could sense that kind of intervention, but on the modern stuff, it's seamless. And so yeah. there's been a couple of bikes I've ridden where I've learned it had electronic brake force distribution and not known about it. I've been riding the bike and it's like, what? It has that? I, right. I had no idea. Right. right. I, feel it. I mean, you know, cer again, certain situations, uh, people riding off-road, sometimes people doing track days, they may not want any electronic intervention, any ABS or traction control. Particularly, I mean, that's, a, you know, we talked earlier about adventure bikes, you know, uh, modern ABS systems, again, are often adapted quite well to the off environment where traction is very limited, where typically off-road ABS will uh, keep ABS intervention on the front wheel. It will turn it off at the rear wheel so you can skid the rear wheel into a corner to slide, go, to slow yourself down going down a hill or whatever it may be but it reduces the amount of intervention in the front. And I actually like off-road ABS because again, I'm not a great off-road rider. And again, you go into a corner and, and over brake, it's too easy to lose the front in, in an off-road situation. Again, it's not gonna prevent it entirely, but every little extra bit helps. And so, yeah. I wanted to be a Luddite counting on my <laughs> immense skills to control the bike, right. but uh, I've given that up. Yeah. Give me the electronics. I just hope it doesn't break. Well, and even with the off-road, you know, settings for traction control, most traction control systems have multiple settings that go from like kind of not, uh, you know, from a lot of intervention to very little is you can kind of set it where uh, you can power slide out of a corner on a, on a big, heavy, powerful adventure bike, 
but there's it's going to keep you from getting too carried away you know because you can just bring that rear around too much and uh so yeah it can save you from yourself if your skills are limited you your enthusiasm gets the better of you uh or you're just in a kind of panic or un, un you know a, a situation where you get kind of freaked out so yeah and for those old school riders pretty much all the adventure bikes you can turn that stuff off so right. you know don't not buy a bike because it has electronics most of it you can turn off or at least dial it way back so it doesn't really intrude well one thing that you and i haven't talked about much uh we mentioned the adaptive ride height suspension on the harley davidson pan america and that it's on the bmw r 1300 gs and i think the tiger triumph tiger explorers is available uh sometimes it's like it's all these bikes it's usually an option because it you know it'll add a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred dollars to the to the price but semi-active suspension which um you know again it's electronic um solenoids and 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 stepper motors and so forth that are adjusting damping rates in real time again one of my most favorite features because you know, there, every time that you have manual suspension set for even for a particular rider, it's always going to be a compromise. You know, is it going to be good for comfort? Is it going to be good for speed? And if you're on a bike where you're riding on the highway part of the time, the canyons part of the time is um, a bike that can the suspension damping can adapt to your whatever the situation is. Or there may be modes that would like, for example, there's you rode the Suzuki GSX. GSXS 1000 GX Plus, which is Suzuki's first bike with semi-active suspension, um, has like hard, medium, and soft modes or a user mode where you can customize the su suspension damping settings. So what do you think? Well, uh, semi-active suspensions are great at, on any bike, but it's especially useful on adventure bikes, anything with a lot of suspension travel, because you get on the brakes and the bike wants to pitch a lot, or if you get on the power, it wants to pitch backward. Uh, semi-active suspension keeps that uh, pitch angle more in control. And yeah, that GX Plus that I rode, uh, you know, I'm riding it in town. There's cobblestone streets and speed bumps and I'm in soft mode and I'm super comfortable. And I get on the freeway and I'm super comfortable. And then we turn down into a canyon and I dial it up to sport. And then it feels like a well uh, tamped down sport bike in terms of suspension. It's, it's, it's instant. It's no kneeling down and figuring out which one's the reboundist, which is the compression and how much preload should I use if I use this much rebound damping and yeah, press a button and it, it'll, it'll do it for you. And the, the GX uh, also has, um, you can finely tune it. So it's not just a global soft, medium, hard, you can also right. fine tune it from there. And so, yeah, it, it it's got to add some money to the cost, but uh, especially on a long travel uh, suspension, it's worth it. Totally. Love it. Yeah. And one of my favorite features is not just the ability to adjust things with a push button, but, you know, like chassis stability is one of the great features of uh, semi-active suspension, not just the comfort or being able to be hard versus soft, but, you know, is it can be set up to where, you know, it won't, bikes won't dive under, under hard braking. They won't squat as much under acceleration. Remember uh, when Ducati first did semi-active suspension on its Multistratas, they had what was called Skyhook, which was an algorithm. And it used to this, they had this schematic of sort of like viewing the bike from above. And it was really like what it's working in real time to try and keep the chassis as stable as possible. It's not getting out of shape. And again, when a chassis pitches too hard up or down, you know, either direction, that can put extra 
forces into the tires. It can really, you know, mm -hmm. compromise traction depending on what the situation is. So uh, it can really help a bike feel really sure-footed. You know, it feels really planted in all situations. And for uh, listeners who might not know, um, semi-active suspension. So an active suspension can actually raise or lower the wheels. And so all the systems on motorcycles are semi-active. So it's controlling the damping uh, and keeping the bike uh, more stable in, in terms of its suspension performance. Right. Well, um, it, we, I mentioned Ducati, of course, you know, one of the things that a lot of these bikes uh, from a lot of these manufacturers, whether they're adventure bikes or some of these sport tours, like you were talking about the Suzuki GSX S1000 GX Plus, uh, there's the Yamaha Tracer 9 GT Plus. Both of those bikes have semi-active suspension. A lot of these bikes have ride modes. And now a ride mode can be something as simple as a throttle response mode or a different engine map that can be like more aggressive or more relaxed, you know, a rain mode that's going to soften throttle response. Ducati was one of the first to come out with what they called four bikes in one with their, I mean, when the Multistrada, the, the more modern version of it came out in 2010, they had, you know, they had a, a sport mode, a touring mode, an urban mode, and a, an enduro mode. And so, and the systems were integrated where it would do throttle response, traction control, ABS, and if it has semi-active suspension, it'll have a, a mode. So each of these modes has all of the best settings from all of these different electronic features. And then of course, most of them allow you to do some customization. Maybe they'll have a custom mode or within any given mode, you can go in and dial in some of your preferences. But yeah, it can be as simple as switching from sport to off-road when you go from pavement to dirt. Right, and there's no rejetting the carburetor for altitudes. <laughs> What's a carburetor? <laughs> Well, speaking of carburetors, I know, so you were at the Suzuki GSX-8R launch this week. So that is Suzuki's, uh, they came out with a new 776cc parallel twin last year that goes in the 8S naked bike in the V-Strom 800 and 800DE adventure bikes. And then they've got a fully fared version of the sport bike called the 8R. And this week uh, you rode that uh, on the street. You also rode it at Chuckwalla Raceway. So tell us about that, and then tell us about what is Suzuki's best-selling motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the AR uh, surprised me in its uh, competency. Uh, it uh, Suzuki gave us a chance to ride it on the street, and it was kind of cold and rainy, and uh, couldn't get much lean angle. Uh, but it was like comfortable. It felt like a a, a GT, like the GSXS. 1000 GT. Uh, and so th this is kind of going the opposite way of the GX uh, to, uh, from the GT to the GX in that it's a naked bike, but it's turned into a bit of a sport bike. But it's not a GSXR at all. It's it's like a GT. It's still very comfortable. Seats comfortable. The motor, that, that parallel twin Suzuki motor, it's a great usable uh, uh, piece of machinery. Uh, when I when we got to ride on the racetrack, uh, I felt it. Uh, I wished it had a little bit more top end power, and uh, I think you've got an analog for that, which uh, might explain that a bit more. But that Suzuki is a really nice bike. It, it, I think it looks great, and it's super usable. So you know, if you want to go do uh, club racing, I guess there's a class for it. But you know, there's sportier motorcycles, but this is a great way to have a sporty looking motorcycle and still be utilitarian and usable. And you could easily do sport touring on it. Yeah. Well, and, and it, 
what retails for nine thousand dollars, right? Eighty nine ninety nine. Ninety four thirty nine. Oh, ninety four thirty nine. Okay. Oh, it's the it's the eight S that's eighty nine ninety nine. Yes. So right. yeah. So I have the naked bike, the eight S in my garage now. I'm working on a comparison test between that and the CF Moto eight hundred NK, which is a um, seven hundred ninety nine CC parallel twin. We could also talk probably an entire episode about parallel twins and the rise of the parallel twin on, yeah. on motorcycles these days and how uh, versatile they are. We'll come back to that. But so the 800 NK, uh, you know, CF Moto's really probably one of the first uh, Chinese manufacturers to become a mainstream brand. They've really come on strong with a full lineup in the last couple of years. But they've had a partnership agreement with KTM for a number of years, and they're actually doing some, they build some engines for KTM. They build some motorcycles, like they build the 790 Adventure, uh, you know, to give them the production capacity. But the part of the partnership agreement between CF Moto and, and KTM is this 800NK uses this KTM 790 motor. It's the, it's, it was designed and tested by KTM in Austria, and then they uh, were allowed to put that in the CF Moto bikes because... That is the absolute most expensive part of developing a motorcycle is developing an engine from scratch. You know, you've got to design it and test it under all kinds of conditions. It's it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions. And so, um, so the the interesting thing is, you were talking about how the Suzuki the eight R feels a little bit strangled at the top end. So we put both the uh, GSX eight S, so essentially the same bike as the R, but without a fairing, uh, and the eight hundred NK on the dyno at jet tuning, and so. Above, uh, they're pretty similar up to about 6,000 RPM, but then the uh, 8S tops out at about 76 horsepower. Um, both of them rev out to about 10,000 RPM, but the eight, uh, the 800NK goes up to 93 horsepower, so it's nearly 20 horsepower more, and it also makes a bit more torque, but it really just sort of leaves the Suzuki behind as you get into the higher revs. And it's really, I mean, that's all about tuning. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it feels, you know, it's like a little bit of a lumpier cam and a little bit more of a, of a lively engine than, than the 8S has. So. Yeah. The, the, the Suzuki definitely feels more refined than that KTM motor or the one that's in the CF moto. Uh, so yeah, if you're looking for horsepower, that's uh, an easy choice, but if you're looking for something that's going to still be running without any issues after 30,000 miles, you know, I'd put my money on the Suzuki. Well, you were talking about uh, earlier about it's got this cross balancer system that's got dual counterbalancer. So it's, it's really smooth. It's not smooth to the point of dullness, but it's the sort of thing where vibration is the enemy of any vehicle, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, longevity. And it's, it, it, so managing that uh, vibration is, is pretty important. So two quick things to tie that one up. First is when I'm at the racetrack, uh, I got on the bike for our first session and I didn't realize the bike was running when I got on it. The Suzuki <laughs> guys had started it up and, you know, you put earplugs in your helmet and I had no idea it was running. Like, not only could I not hear it, I, I couldn't feel it. It is so relatively smooth. And I asked the Suzuki engineers, I said, I said, you know, I wish this bike was a bit louder. Are you building it right to the limit of, uh, you know, what the EPA will let you get away with? And uh, they said, yes. And I said, well, how come, you know, it's so quiet relative to other bikes? And he says, well, maybe the other companies are cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is, you know, a lot of a lot of motorcycles have got to meet, you know, sound sound standards uh, or sound regulations for the EPA. Yeah. Can't sell them in the United States unless they do that. And uh, 
So, you know, we've talked about the, the tech of some of these bikes and how that is um, uh, that makes bikes uh, sophisticated and cool and versatile and all that stuff. And we love them, uh, you know, but it's also added to the sticker price. You know, uh, you yeah. mentioned the Suzuki GSX-S 1000 GX Plus, which is the most expensive Suzuki you can buy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's nearly $19,000. Yeah, pushing 20 and to a lot of riders, uh, I've had people say to me afterwards, as, God, that's that's Ducati territory or KTM territory. And it's like, well, if you want all the good stuff, it's going to cost money. And the, the COVID thing and supply chains, it seemed like manufacturers were kind of just arbitrarily boosting their prices and adding certain fees. Uh, There's like supply chain fees from some brands and yeah, bikes are getting expensive, but what isn't getting expensive? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, there are, whenever you go to a manufacturer's website, there's always the base price, uh, but then there's things, there's, you know, there's freight, there's uh, destination, there's setup charges, and these can add hundreds of dollars to the bottom line. And some of this stuff is, is uh, you know, uh, charges that dealers, you know, because they got to get the bike out of the crate and they got to set it up in order to, for you to take it away and so forth. But it is uh they've tacked on uh quite a few of these charges that didn't used to be there and so it's making expensive bikes even more expensive yeah it's tough for consumers except uh any bike you pick is going to be a good one and so you know <laughs> the new one <laughs> well at the opposite end of the market uh you know it, yes a lot of bikes have gotten more sophisticated but there's also i think there's a lot of cool um smaller bikes on the market uh you know aprilia they came out with their RS660 sport bike uh, with a parallel twin uh, a couple of years ago. There's an RS457 version uh, that they haven't released a lot of details about, but it's a 457cc, presumably parallel twin. It's uh, $67.99. Uh, we mentioned CF Moto. They've got a 450NK. So that NK usually means naked bike. They also have an SS version of it that's with a full fairing. That's $53.99. Um, also for 2024, Kawasaki brought back the Eliminator. You know, years ago, the Eliminator was, uh, was a cruiser with a Ninja 900 motor in it. They went small and um, there were different versions of the Eliminator, but the one they brought back is they took the uh, Ninja 400 engine, uh, added some more stroke to it. So it's now a 451cc parallel twin, uh, put it in what's basically kind of a sport cruiser. It's kind of like, looks sort of like, uh, you know, would be a competitor with the Honda Rebel 500. That's yeah. 66, you know, 50 to buy one of those. They just announced this week, um, new, uh, using the same 451cc parallel twin, there's a Ninja 500 uh, and then a Z500 naked bike. Those bikes, you know, um, start at just over five grand. Uh, this weekend, uh, or the last weekend of, of, of January, our associate editor, Allison, is going to Spain. Uh, to ride two new Triumphs, their first small displacement bikes of the modern Triumph era. They've uh, she's going to ride the Speed 400, uh, which is forty nine ninety five, and then the Scrambler 400X, which is fifty six hundred dollars. So those have a brand new three ninety eight cc parallel twin. No, they're singles. I'm sorry, it's a single. single yeah. Um. Uh, so, what do you think of all the smaller bikes on the market? I'm a big fan. There, there used to be this uh, stigma against smaller bikes, like yeah, it's they're not manly enough for me, or <laughs> you know, whatever. And uh, I had a really great uh, uh, experience on a long-term KTM 390 Duke. I had uh, I love that bike. Yep, yeah, 
and uh, I rode it out to Chuckwalla, so a three-hour crappy freeway ride, and I did a track day on it, ripped around on the track all day, and then rode it home. And the thing is fast. Like, you know, it's not as fast as, you know, bigger displacement bikes, but certainly plenty enough for entertainment. And that 390 Duke, and I bet you this uh, Triumph 400, that'll outpull, outpower a Triumph 650 from the old days, right? Sure. Yeah. And now it's a single cylinder bike and it, it'll provide plenty of entertainment. And there's no problem pulling 90 miles an hour down the freeway if that's how fast you want to go. And if you can get them for four or five, six grand, that's a, that's a lot of value there yeah. that, you know, we always think we want the next step up and sometimes you don't really need it. Well, I'm going to be going to Spain next month for uh, 2024 KTM celebrating 30th anniversary, 30 years of Duke, of the Duke line. So uh, they've got a new 250 Duke, which replaces the 200 Duke. They've got an updated 390 Duke. They've got a 990 Duke. And then at the top of the food chain, they've gone from the 1290 to the 1390 Super Duke R Evo. Um, Step up. And 1350 cc's. 188 horsepower uh so we're going to be riding these bikes on the on the street and the track but i have to say i mean i've ridden a 390 duke it's been usually about right at about five thousand dollars it's got throttle by wire it's got a tft display it's got abs i mean it it's a lot of bang for the buck and it's absolutely a blast to ride i mean there's that saying it's always more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow Thank is you. that when you know that a bike only has so much power you can actually get you can play with its limits, you know, in terms of how fast you can get into cornering speed uh, and, and so forth. Whereas a lot of bikes that are just, I would say too powerful for the street, but you really can't utilize their full capabilities on the street. And most people don't have the skill to even really utilize their full capabilities on the track. Yeah. And uh, some of the enjoyment about riding a motorcycle is like twisting its tail hard. And, <laughs> 1390 duke or a ducati street fighter if you hold the throttle pin for two seconds you are breaking laws like there's just no other way to get around it they're so fast that you will be past 60 and past 80 and past 100 in no time and it, there's something really satisfying about feeling the end of that throttle cable or the electronic throttle cable <laughs> and exactly. you, you know getting everything you can out of a motorcycle and yeah there's still lots of enjoyment in small bikes I agree. I, I always have fun riding them. Uh, like I said, there's going to be some cool ones to, we've had some, you know, we've got tests of the Eliminator uh, on our website. Allison rode that one. We look forward to hearing her feedback on on riding the Speed 400 and the Scrambler 400X. So um, speaking of Triumph, uh, there's one one more thing I want to talk about. Uh, obviously, we've got a lot of bikes to talk about. We'll come back and do another episode or two. We're definitely going to do one just about adventure bikes, but Announced for 2024, Triumph has a dirt bike. It's the TF250X. It's a 250cc uh, motocross bike. Uh, they have, you know, the GOAT, Ricky Carmichael, uh, helped develop that bike, as well as Yvonne Cervantes, who has also won a bunch of, of racing, uh, you know, off-road races. Is Those guys helped develop that bike, and um, it's going to compete in, I think, the probably the the uh, world GP of, uh, you know, or the, the GP of, of, of motocross. I'm not sure what their sort of race teams are going to do, but what, why would Triumph come out with a dirt bike? Well, I imagine to flex their engineering might. The, the problem Triumph has with that, and Ducati is also developing a 450 motocrosser, is that, okay, so 
the state of the art is already elevated, right? The difference between a Kawasaki and a Suzuki and a Honda, there, there's there's not much in it. So you got to spend money on the best rider, and that's million or millions of dollars. And then once you've got that bike finished, then you got to start developing the next one because everybody else is working on their next one. So rather than uh, a bike that you can like the the K5 Suzuki motor, the vaunted K5 Suzuki, it came out in 2005 in the GSXR 1000, and it's used in that GX Plus and the GT and other bikes from Suzuki. So you get a lot of amortization of your investment on that. When you're in the motocross world and you're competing at the highest levels, the, the development never stops. It's got to keep on going. So for Suzuki or for Ducati and Triumph to be playing in that market, and that market is mostly just North America. They sell motocross bikes in Europe too, but riding areas are really restricted. So it's it's mostly here. So there's a lot of investment. You The R&D and then the riders to show it well, right? It, having a new Triumph or a Ducati competing in Supercross doesn't mean anything if you're running in 12th. So you got to spend money on the best rider. And so they're spending a ton of money on this. And uh, I wonder if I was the CEO, I'd be saying, yeah, let's sign that check. And the the the, the counter um, uh, to that is uh, you'd mentioned the, the Suzuki's best-selling motorcycle. Right. I was talking to the Suzuki guys uh, earlier this week. And I asked, what's the best-selling Suzuki motorcycle? And they said, globally? The best-selling motorcycle is the DR650. Now, I don't know when the last time you rode a DR650 is, Greg, but it's been years and years for me. But that thing's been around since 1990. You know, maybe some mild updates, but it's essentially the same motorcycle. And they're 30-some years later, they're still selling it and in big numbers. And so when you look at what Suzuki's doing with sales of a DR650 and you think of what Ducati and Triumph are going to have to do with sales of their dirt bikes, you know, the Supercross, Motocross bikes. Right. Uh, but yeah, uh, good, difficult business case to make in my mind. Yeah, I mean, DR650 is still carbureted. It's sort of like the Honda uh, 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 XR650L. Uh, you know, that was a big deal a couple of years ago when Kawasaki decided to give put their uh, fuel injection on their KLR650 because it had also been unchanged for years. Yeah, those bulletproof dual sport bikes, they paid for themselves and the tooling and everything, you know, decades ago, it seems yeah. like, and they're, they're still making money off them. And the, the funny thing is, <laughs> buy them buy them new they're not really that cheap you know there's zillions of them on the market use that are pretty darn affordable but they're not really dirt cheap to go in and just buy one even though like i said they're going to make money off of every one so yeah you know the the dirt bike thing with with triumph i mean for them to get into that you know uh, good for them more power more more brands or more you know manufacturers in any competition is a good thing but man going up against companies like ktm and husvarna the big four of Japan. I mean, they've been in this game for a long, long time and they've got a lot of money tied up in it. So uh, yeah, they're jumping right into the deep end of the pool and uh, you know, like I say, wish them luck, but it's, it's, it's going to be challenging. You know, it will be. Yeah. I don't see how they're going to raise the game just on the bike. Oh, anybody who's riding the triumph is going to win because the bike's so much better than the bike Honda has been refining for 40 years. Right. 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 <laughs> Well, uh, you know, we just scratched the surface of the 74 or so new and updated motorcycles for 2024. We talked about a lot of general topics and trends. Uh, we'll certainly get into the weeds with some of these bikes because uh, in another episode. So I really appreciate everybody listening. Duke, it's always fun to chat with you. 
uh, talk about bikes. Uh, you know, I'd rather us be uh, at a bar with the beers in our hand but rather than on a Zoom call. But um, I know you've ridden a lot of these bikes. So real quick, uh, one of the 2024 bikes that you rode early in the earlier last year was like in last winter or spring. It was called a 2024, but it was an early 2023. What is that bike? That's the Triumph Street Triple R, which retails for ten grand ninety nine ninety nine, and boy, it's a European semi exotic bike that is great on the road. It turned out to be great on the Jerez racetrack uh, too, and so you know it's European. It's kind of special and it's very utilitarian. You could you know, use it for commuting, you could use it for sport touring, and you can use it for track days. So. The value for me, the value proposition for me, that Street Triple 765R is almost unbeatable. Almost unbeatable. Well, that's saying a lot because I know you've ridden hundreds and hundreds of motorcycles. And, you know, yeah, so one of the things about those Triumphs is, you know, they're known for their inline triples. Uh, those are sweet, sweet engines. They're very mm -hmm. unique in terms of character, you know, kind of striking the balance between a, a, a an inline four and maybe a V-twin. Um, the 765R makes 118 horsepower. So it's a middleweight bike that's really got a lot of get up and go. I unfortunately haven't ridden it yet. I'm glad that you got a chance to ride it and you've been um, extolling its virtues ever since. So, and that's the thing, like, you know, we talked about, you know, twenty thirty thousand dollars adventure bikes and and you know we the some of the cvos that harley announced this week are forty thousand plus you know and a lot goes into their paint jobs and they're all decked out with stuff but you know you can still buy an absolutely fantastic motorcycle for 10 grand or less you know we talked about some of the small bikes but you're talking about a you know 765 cc bikes plenty of size power um you know it's a naked bike so it's not you're not going to do lots of touring on it like you could with other bikes, but again, a, a all around fun, useful, looks cool, uh, blast ride, 10 grand, you know? Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to technology and the latest bikes, sure, I, I'm happy to ride your $25,000, $30,000 bike. Just don't ask me to buy it. Yeah. The, a 10 grand, that's more in my price range. And that sounds like a fun time to me. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time, Duke. Uh, for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Jebensed. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.